like this, this early experiment in yoga in the West, I would say has pretty much had its day. You know, people are, there's been so much injury and so much disappointment in it. And this bravado of the celebrity gymnastic Noah, uh, I think is winding down. And people want to know what yoga actually is. In this podcast, Rituals co-founder Rose Lamont dives deep into conversations with authentic spiritual teachers, philosophers, and inspiring individuals from around the world to share their pearls of wisdom with you. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining me on the podcast today and taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this interview. You've been teaching yoga all over the world now for about four decades. Uh, You've written four books on yoga practice and, as I understand it, numerous articles for different publications specifically dealing with um, the subject of yoga. You offer courses and trainings, both online and in person, through your school, The Heart of Yoga. And as I understand it, your mission uh, and a part of your purpose with your courses and what, what, with what you're sharing um, is in some sense to, to share and, and revive the teachings of your direct mentors who were none other than Krishnamacharya himself and his son, Desikachar. Uh, And I want to talk about, you know, the circumstances in which you wound up uh, in India with, you know, the world's foremost teachers on Hatha Yoga. But before we get into all of that and and your story, I wondered if you could share with us uh, the story that you told me the other day um, about an interaction, a conversation that you had with one of your students, the very well-known spiritual teacher, Ramdas. Thank you very much, Rose. And let me start by saying we've had one conversation. I have not met you in person, but we were having a little rave the other day. And I was like really heartened that you had gathered uh, a lot of information about this yoga in the Guru Parampara of Krishnamacharya and Desikachar uh, with the other uh, influences of this yoga, like um the Krishnamurtis, J. Krishnamurti, U.G. Krishnamurti, and others, and that you had garnered a good understanding of what we're doing here. What pleased me very much is that this was all communicated to you online. And, you know, we know that the world's in a desperate humanity. The universe is okay, but humanity has some very big problems, unresolved problems. And uh, things are getting urgent, you know. And this uh, platform of going online, I think, is the way we do this now. You know, it's like it's too urgent to mess around with little groups here and there. We want to have a general yoga education that goes everywhere in the world. And since the pandemic years, we've got busy doing that, creating online education courses and and a yoga studio online where people from all around the globe gather. And this has been very good. So I was pleased to know that you, as one person, had gone online and really got what we were saying. You know, some things, some ideas had caught your attention and indeed, you know, informed you of your your own yoga practice and what you will pass on to others as a teacher. So this was great that this happened online, you know, because this is what we are doing and what we need to do in the world. And to go back to your first question is this was definitely Krishnamacharya's mission in the world that his son Desikachar took on in his giant footsteps, you know. And Krishnamacharya is a great scholar of the traditions, you know, of Vedic tradition, of the traditions of India and Tibet. Uh, He went deeply into it. And at a certain time in his young life, after studying for 11 years in the universities of of, uh, the hub of of, uh, the Hindu tantras, 
in Varanasi, he became aware that yoga was not available in India. It had fallen flat after the 14th century. It had become sort of perverted and and uh, a free-for-all, you know, anything-will-do kind of idea after the 14th century by the male orthodox uh, power structures of religious life, uh, you know, Hindu yoga cults and so on and so forth. And it was a free-for-all where spiritual transmission was, after the 14th century, considered to be in the realm of, of power structure, of authorities, you know, male authorities who knew what was, <laughs> what the truth was. And they became sort of social, political authorities and brought a bit of yoga into their teaching, but it was completely haphazard. So by the time he'd finished his academic studies of the entire, the six great dashinas of the ancient world, the philosophical systems, he had noticed that what he was looking for in yoga was not in India. And he therefore, you know, by reputation, he heard about his teacher, Rama Mohan Brahmachari in Tibet. And yoga after the 14th century was pushed into isolation uh, away from the public view uh, into Tibet. And so he went there and he stayed there for seven years, uh, studying very sincerely with his, his teacher. Uh, these yoga understandings and the, and the and the actual yoga practice. And you see, he, with his academic discernment that he gathered in his years in Varanasi as a young man, he looked into yoga in India and saw that it wasn't there. And he, he wanted to be accurate. He wanted to be true in what, because he was in every other area of his philosophical scholarship. And he wanted to bring the discernment of his mind and his feelings to the subject of yoga, which is one of the six great darshanas of, of the ancient world. So he found it. And then at the behest of his teacher, Rama Mohan Brahmachari, at one point, he was is still quite a young man. He was asked by his guru to go back into the world, go back into South India, where which was his native home, and bring it to the people. So he, he was told that, you know, go and find a good wife, uh, start a family, which is the yoga, the yoga way, you know. It is not one of renunciation away from the world as a religious idealism, but one of embracing tangible conditions. So in some ways, was he more of a, he had more of a tantric approach to classical yoga, to, to yoga in, in general? Well, just to clarify that, that yoga is the tantra. You see that what the, this period of the great tantras that lasted for a thousand years from the 5th to the 14th century. I mean, and really God knows before then, the Upanishadic time and the time of of the Vedas, you know, like thousands of years back, it was all yoga, 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 you know. But then it got codified in the tantric traditions for a thousand years. And then you see this uh, late time Hinduism, which is the, the Veda of Vedanta, the non-dual realization of the Shankaracharya. At the 10th century, they merged, the Tantras and the Vedanta came together as one Dharma with Ramanuja Acharya. And Krishnamacharya was in that same lineage. See, it was actually like a family lineage. And he, that was his academic problem, is that his own Guru Parampa was telling him there must be yoga to actualize the non-dual state. And when you speak about yoga, um, you know, because obviously there is sometimes there's a lot of different definitions with respect to practice, that there had to be a practice involved. Are you specifically referring to the physicality of the practice, yoga asana and pranayama techniques? Yeah. 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 This merging of the tantras with Vedanta uh, was Ramanuja Acharya, who's one of the, he was the second great Acharya of Vedanta, which is, you know, Vedanta is akin to Buddhism. It's a 
you know a deep uh, profound tradition of um of reality realization of what life actually is and the living of what life actually is so that statement was made in Vedanta starting with Ramanuja that there must be yoga is the statement that Krishnamacharya would love to repeat is that it is yoga that brings the two to be one the two are one but the mind is creating separation the mind is presuming thought is creating the presumption of separation that's not really there at all there is only one reality arising so this became a deep part of of the tradition of krishnamacharya that he was born into as as a vedanta scholar is that there must be a yoga to actualize uh the state of god realization to actualize uh advaita vedanta advait not two only one the state of what we call a non-duality so there must be some kind of binding practice is some kind of unification that takes place is that what you're what you're getting at here well just basically um participation in the actual life as it actually is that includes all tangible conditions of life that includes the body and the breath and then the body's relatedness to its own experience including of course the male female collaboration which is the form of all existence of all life you know and i must always qualify whether it's same sex or opposite sex intimacy or any gender identification whatsoever or none at all life is the union of opposites and um it's the the structure of reality itself opposites in union as one you know, there is no left without right nobody's nobody's ever seen a left see left implies right above implies below strength implies receptivity you know just like all and that is all of life like a tree has a strong trunk ascending and it resolves in utterly soft foliage receptive see ascending and descending and that is the form of all life it's the form of the human body but that that of course that natural state is being um denied humanity as it created its thinking activity that presumed separation and the separation especially of the sexes that has created havoc in this world mm. so yoga is really like a tool in some ways to to be able to to see beyond that separation or something that um immerses you into the reality that we're currently blind to in terms of just our everyday mode of operation totally and for you know for where that obstruction is there in the thought patterning of the human system then that yoga is required see mm. uh, this is ramanuja's very you know avataric you know um statement to the world is that there must be yoga to correct this fault of mind that is presuming separation and so he to, so to realize advait the non-dual state to realize god there must be the yoga of participation in the tangible conditions of reality and that implied the male female polarity that the mutuality collaboration that is life itself and they they would politely just say family life is there in the in the life of god realization in the life of yoga and this is this ran quite counter to you know vast world traditions and you know in christianity and in vedanta and in buddhism so on and so forth is this presumption that you you transcend tangible conditions into kind of some sort of soup of awareness or detachment and that you're saying this has created our our problem in the first place uh, yoga is turning the other way 
you know, you mentioned that he he went to Tibet to to study with his teacher and to find his teacher, and he did. And what kind of practices and techniques was Krishnamacharya learning from his teacher? And obviously, there would have been a lot of dialogue. But I, I wonder what they were doing together. And you know, did he um, be did he learn asana and pranayama from his teacher in Tibet, or did he learn that somewhere else? Yeah, he did. That see, he couldn't find it in India. Yeah. The, the shocking fact, I mean, there's been a lot of yoga. Even after the 14th century, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which was a sort of a, a, a male cultic book that plagiarized some of the earlier tantras, but then turned it into this extreme, exaggerated effort towards the attainment of a future state, you know. And yoga is not the attainment of a future ideal. There, you know, there is no future God realization. There is no future enlightenment. There is only participation in the given, you know, what life actually is. And I think that's a, a huge relief for people to to hear that because mm. you know when you start to study yoga and you know you're looking at the linear way in which it's written down and the way that you step through this procedure, you realize that you know, on some levels, unless you are, you know, leaving society, it's, well, it's just impossible to do that much practice that's required to move through it like a ladder or like a linear kind of path. So, and as well, the the implication that you're trying to reach something that, that you don't have currently, I think is really off-putting for people, or it's kind of disheartening for people because it just seems so far away. Yeah, but and the more conscientious you see, and the more committed, the people who commit themselves to that linear struggle of a future realization. You know, there's a lot of committed people in this world, and it is the the only framework that's been given us in this world of attaining some future ideal, and that's either in the you know just the usual offerings of the of the regular life, you know the career and money and and sex or no sex or uh you know relationship success everything that's offered to us a nice house etc etc and that becomes shallow and stressful and then we turn to the spiritual offerings which are exactly the same thing a struggle towards some you're trying to get something you see and these Yoga as it actually came through that thousand year period, fifth to the 14th century, that was very codified. It was very much there, but then forgotten about as male orthodoxy took over and their sort of presumption of uh, the knowers, the authorities, held a little bit of yoga here and there. Uh, Krishnamacharya observed in his scholarship that it had gone. So that's what pushed him up to go and find it. And yes, it was seven years of study of asana and pranayama. He came back saying, you know, I teach only what my teacher taught me, nothing more and nothing less. You know, so it was the remnants of yoga were still there. Thank God, you know, and thank God for his guru's request and Krishnamacharya's um, honoring of that request that you know he lived to 101 years old and died in 1989 quite recently you know of our own time of our modern time and he did a life work in Mysore mainly but then later on in Madras Chennai and his son Deskachar took it over and the Dasagachar was an engineer, a brilliant man, who at the age of 27 realized what his father was holding. And he turned his life over, his, his uh, engineering, his science. His, and he was an English speaker and you know, educated in Western universities and so forth. So um, we owe a lot to the son Dasagachar. And how did you come to, to wind up in India and, and studying with your mentors, uh, Deskachar and his father, Krishnamacharya? Well, 
you know, the a whole thing happened. Um, you know, thank God for the miracle of, of culture that invented democracy, see. And our forefathers went out, out and protected us against the fascists who wanted to take over this world. And we established democracy, you know, the the individual rights, you know, free people within a free state, you know. So I had one Indian guru tell me, don't underestimate the the beauty of the cultural wisdom that has been created in the modern time called democracy. It is a great spiritual attainment, you know, this cultural system that we have. So by the time the young men like Richard Alpert, who became Ram Das, and the other young men, um, Bhagavan Das and Jayutal and Krishna Das and many, Ramesh Das, they all see, they went there as naive young men and they met, you would say, um, genuine reality realizers, you know, genuine people who are in the most sublime human state that it's possible to be in, you know, through the dark, terrible times of World War One and Two, the, you know, the European darkness. And uh, there was Ramana Maharishi and the Bhagavan Nityananda and Ananda Maimar and Shirdi Sai Baba. You know, there was this, there was a blossoming of Vedic culture. So by the time I sort of grew up, this was happening. You know, Ram Das has put, had put his book out, Be Here Now. And the Beatles were off to Rishikesh studying with the Mahesh Yogi. Uh, who was, you know, in a genuine uh, Vedic lifestyle. So this was, all intrigued me, you know. So I dropped out of university at, you know, 18 years old. I said, no, this is not it. This is, you know, there's got to be more than what's on offer here in the suburbs, you know. So I went off to India and roamed around India for a long time, more than a couple of years. And then and then I met by going to first to Ramana Maharishi's ashram in the south, and then finding out about Krishnamacharya and Deskaja, and went there in 1973. And something I, I really like that you've said about meeting Deskachar and Krishnamacharya is that, you know, what you found so, um, you know, authentic about them was the fact that they were just in their natural state and very ordinary people not seeking fame or you know trying to run a kind of yoga business they were really just going about their their own business and their own life and their own scholarship in yoga and you you said they attained you know I, I guess the highest goal of yoga which is the the naturalness of a human being or the ordinariness can you speak to that <laughs> yeah so I was saying before, I was so touched that you'd picked up a lot of this teaching just by, you know, our online resources and books and so forth and videos. And, you know, you looked into it and it had informed you. One of the statements that struck you, that hit you like a ton of bricks was the statement, Deskachar had attained ordinariness. I think I made that statement somewhere along the line. In other words, they were not seekers. They were not, and they were definitely not selling anything. They weren't creating a yoga business. I always like to say Krishnamacharya, he never had a website. <laughs> <laughs> and he never had Instagram. Although it turns out that he's the greatest Instagram yogi ever because he took a lot of time to photograph asana of himself doing asana. He did it in a time where photography was a very difficult matter and but he did it because he wanted the world to have it you see and I just want to go back to your original query is that you know he came down from Tibet with a great deal of uh, life commitment that lasted 101 years to bring yoga to the world and it started in Mysore under the patronage of the Maharaj of Mysore this um, Krishna Raj Wadia the fourth that we owe him a lot that 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 king you know 
it all came to an end after the British left India. That system of the Maharajas ended. And Krishnamacharya had to go to Chennai with his a very large family, you know, and he had to survive as a yoga teacher. But he persevered, persevered, as did Desikachar, because they knew, you know, even from a the position of his religious scholarship, he knew that there must be yoga, you see, to all cultures, to all people, to actualize the religious or spiritual ideals that are there, but have been dissociated from their uh, yoga origins and the cause of realization, which is each person's participation in the natural state, in life as it actually is, you know, in the in the column, the tree of the body strength that is utterly receptive. You know, the crown is utterly receptive and open to life it receives. It's not a knotted, well, it doesn't have to be a knot of thoughts with a lid on top. It can be like mm. an upward turned bowl to life, mm. receiving light, you know. Oh, that's such a cool way to put it. I yeah. really like that. Yeah, down the front, through the crown, through the frontal line of the body, all receptive, right to the base of the body. You see, receiving life and receiving one another, receiving our experience. But what is receiving? It is strength that receives. It's the the trunk that receives. Without the trunk, the foliage dies. Without the foliage, the trunk withers, you know. So he... He was definitely committed as a human being to getting this into the world, which is why he worked so hard in Mysore and taught the young men like Iyengar and Patabi Joyce and many others and taught his own sons. And he was also, he also made an effort to include women. Is that right? Indra Devi was one of his students. And, you know, before that, women weren't really as included um, yeah. with yoga? Well, that's a big point. See, you know, people probably don't realize, or maybe they do, that India is one of the most misogynist places in this world, you know. The, the problems that face Iran, you know, India has the same, not quite as intense, but it's the same religious psychologies and the, the dominance of male, the male authority that is uh, sanctioned by religious belief, you know, has caused, you know, terror in this world. And that's in India. And uh, let's be clear, it's everywhere in the world because that's been the dominance of religious thought, see, that there's a power holder that knows the truth, that there's some access to God through a perfect person. That perfect person implies that everybody else is not perfect. And that's the order of the human mind. Thought created dissociation from what life actually is. I so, like what you call it, like a disempowerment, like a, a structure of disempowerment. I forget how you word it exactly, but um, it is a framework which keeps people disempowered from actually accessing accessing yoga. I guess because it's they have it and I don't. So there's always that reaching and that seeking. So the path is like it always seems like it's it's somewhere to get to rather than something you can just open up to in the moment. Yeah, well, I want to make it clear that that is the entire world. That is the world, that presumption. Yeah. You know, that's and, and it's the only framework that we're given. Mm. It is deep, deep. <laughs> deep in us, whether mm. we're struggling in the world systems of the economies and so forth, or whether we're struggling in the the high ideals of religious, spiritual, and yoga life, that's what the only framework we're given is that struggle. And we be and some become very committed to that struggle and then very disappointed and even make themselves sick and injure their bodies with aggressive gymnastic asana and so forth. And it's the only framework that's that is given to to uh, flush that out of our system, to see its 
the term, the social dynamic of disempowerment, that the perfect person is there and I'm not. And I have to get there through this conscientious struggle that inevitably leads to failure. Was that Yuji Krishnamurti who, who imparted that, that teaching to you? More than Krishnamacharya? Was, was that Krishnamurti? More so than, and just as you said that, a beautiful Australian bird. I'm in Perth right now. When you mentioned Yuji Krishnamurti, this great, beautiful parrot of some extraordinary beauty just landed in the frangipani tree right in front of me here as you mentioned that word <laughs> i just want to mention that yes uh, so there's a lot there's a lot i can say there yeah so yuji was a dear friend of krishnamacharya and he studied with krishnamacharya all his yogas for um, quite a long time and he he really held Krishnamacharya to the fire of his own teaching and that and that is that yoga is participation only in the given reality in the power of the cosmos that is the body you know uh, this great statement from Yuji if there's any power in this universe it's in you life is expressing itself in you and me and the person listening here that's where power is. It's, it is not anywhere else. But we are deeply programmed to assume that it's somewhere else and we become diligent in trying to get it. And then the inevitable stress and frustration and failure. And to go back to what you were asking a moment ago is that these yogas that Krishnamacharya brought down from the mountain, that he brought down from Tibet and brought it to Mysore, are the yogas of participation only in the given wonder power that is everybody's condition. Mm, that's so beautiful. And obviously something very remote from, you know, what we might consider to be yoga, you know, in the, in the world is the common definition that most people think of, you know, when they're thinking of yoga. And I have a quote here, which I wanted to read to you by you. Um, and it says that we are now beyond the gymnastic bravado, bullying and abuse that was legitimized by the young men who popularized yoga in the West. The public is fed up or just thinking it's silly stretching for girls. Um, and you also say that yoga has been co-opted and disassociated from its tradition and the world is now ready to receive the real teachings you know, I wanted to to ask you, you know, do you think the world is is ready to receive the real teachings? Because, you know, when I look around, it still seems in such a sorry state, um, yoga and yoga practice and, you know, is the world ready? And and what, what does that take, really? Uh, you mentioned Yuji Krishnamurti used to say, it is not love that will save humanity, it is fear that will save humanity. And when we you know each of us as individuals or as a as a collective you know both personally and publicly when mm -hmm. we see there's no other option but to be become intimate or to participate in the intrinsic power and beauty that is this body and the intrinsic harmony you see this body your body my body and the body of the person listening is in a profound harmony with the total context you know that we are in the total context you know with the sun and the moon and with the galaxy and with the light and the, the water and the green you know the green realm our food uh, all tangible conditions you see male-female collaboration, which is the nurturing force of life that brings new life into existence. When we see that that is the situation and there is no, no other way, and it's the sort of idealisms of love that we attempt to live by, or the idea of attaining peace even through some sort of stressful effort, some sort of... Uh, 
trying to meditate and bring yourself to a, a state, you know, uh, none of it works. And I think that perhaps in the natural evolutions of this of humanity, there will be a turning. There, and there will be availability in the psychologies of the world to for individuals and for the public to receive these uh, ancient wisdom, physical teachings that were there for a thousand years, almost impossible to imagine a thousand years, but they were there. And this is why he was so committed. You know, he worked really hard. And then some sort of mistakes happened on the way with the young, the young boys like Mr. Iyengar as a young boy uh, took off and he went to Europe in 1954 and they had a great deal of business prowess and, you know, gymnastic bravado. And it was, they were very intriguing to the Western mind. And they used the same sort of Western psychologies of the struggle towards a future attainment. You know, it's not just the West, it's the East. It's the only framework that's there that's been created by male orthodoxy. And Mr. Iyengar was in that orthodoxy. And for whatever reason, he didn't stay to get an education in what Krishnamacharya was actually teaching. So as yoga was popularized around the world, this these important matters of how each individual, uh, no matter who they are, no matter what their body type, age or health might be, or their culture, there's a right yoga that fits them. That is their participation in the power that is the cosmos. The body is the cosmos. <laughs> Mm, that's so beautiful. Yeah. And was that, you know, I, I did hear a story about how Jiddu Krishnamurti came to to be the student of, of Desikachar. And that was because, you know, he was trying these more forceful practices, I believe, with Mr. Iyengar. And it was he was finding it actually wasn't um improving his health or he wasn't yeah. finding any benefit from him. So it was actually him going to Krishnamacharya and and learning you know, his methods of exactly what you just said that were able to help him. Can you talk yeah. more about that? Yeah, well, so Jay Krishnamurti was an extraordinary person. He he ran away from theosophy and with a statement that said, truth is a pathless land, right? That, that is, you know, if, if you're on a path, it must be leading away from truth. Truth is inherent. You know, truth is the body. Here is truth. <laughs> truth is pure existingness and I am that, you are that, and the mosquito is that. The bird that just landed on the tree is that. The tree is that. The galaxy is that. Truth is pathless. It requires no path. The mind creates a path. Religion and yoga and meditation and all the rest of it. And then off we go, convinced by the charm of the knowledge authorities with their knowledge and we struggle in the knowledge that's given to us, the only framework that's given. And off we go. So he fell out of that tree of entanglement <laughs> and scampered away free, apparently. And so he had health issues late in his life. And it was the great Vanda Scaravelli, an Italian yoga teacher who, who was a student of Mr. Anger. And she brought J.K., J. Krishnamurti and Mr. Iyengar together. And Krishnamurti did some yoga in Zanin in Switzerland with Iyengar in their great tent meetings that they used to have there. And um, his health issues became worse because it was too much struggle. And, you know, his, it was making his body brittle and sort of toughened, not receptive, not relaxed. So he went to Krishnamacharya on one of his trips to the Theosophical World Headquarters in Adyar and Madras, and he visited Krishnamacharya and said, can you help me? 
uh, and Krishnamacharya said, yes, I can help you. In fact, I'll, I'll ask my own son to be your teacher. So Deskachar was just a young boy, really, and he became the teacher to Jay Krishnamurti. And he, he to, this, uh, to this we owe a lot because Krishnamurti loved it. And Deskachar said, I became a better teacher of my, a better student of my own father because I saw how Krishnamacharya, uh, how Krishnamurti was such a diligent student, always turned up on time, had a passion for the subject, uh, really learnt um, as a good student from Deskachar. And Deskachar was a young boy and he was like a world famous personality. So this really struck, touched Deskachar's heart. And he's, and Jay Krishnamurti asked Desikachar to don't underestimate the knowledge that Krishnamacharya held and asked him to you know, learn as much as he possibly could. But he also had another instruction for Desikachar, which was, please don't become one more monkey. Don't become one more guru and exploit the gullibility of the public. Don't put them on the merry-go-round of seeking towards a future result that the guru is supposed to be in. You know, the social dynamic of disempowerment. Don't do that. And Deskachar definitely felt the meaning of that statement. And he never did do it. So both Krishnamacharya and Deskachar stepped beyond the male orthodoxy that was otherwise the only framework that India had. And they did not do it. They would not do it. They were not business people in yoga. And they taught only what was needed for each individual that came and gave them these, these principles of whole body breath, the inhale merging with the exhale, the receptivity from above merging with the strength from below in the natural qualities of a natural life of life as it is this this reminds me of a statement and i'm not sure if if you coined it or if it came from one of your teachers that it that a teacher is no more or no less than a friend i think that's really beautiful well that was see that was the the barb or the the mood the quality of my teacher deskachar he was a mm. friend Mm. And uh, when in 1973, I, I also met Yuji Krishnamurti. And there's another whole story there, the relationship of Jay Krishnamurti and Yuji Krishnamurti. Now, Krishnamurti is a name like Smith in English. It, you know, there's a, there's a million Krishnamurtis in the phone book in Madras. So there was no, no relationship there. But uh, so uh, my teacher, Dasagachar, he adored Yuji Krishnamurti because he was, he was, uh, you know, you might say he was the fruit of Vedanta. He was in the natural state. Something had happened to him where uh, all the, the uh, seeking, the, the knowledge that is put in us became irrelevant to him. And he became a natural man, as we say. And he had a, a great influence on both Dasagachar and myself, and certainly an influence on Krishnamacharya. And it's really a collaboration, you see, of these great people and their and the women who were their consorts, Menaka Dasagachar and Namagiri Amadhi, the beloved of Krishnamacharya. Um, so there was something that happened there, you see, where the, the clarity that Yuji uh, brought to the subject ended the seeking completely. That yoga is not in that. The yoga that belonged in the pre-14th century had nothing to do with this framework that we're otherwise given that life is a dedication to working on yourself to some future ideal that you have been sold that's there this answer that the gurus and the popes and the priests have given you know there is god but you're not there yet 
you know, and now you said about with all the problems that that creates, so like, okay, how do I get there? You know, how do I meditate? Do I try harder with this asana? You know, do I, you know, should I spend more time in prayer? You know, what should I do? You know, all these questions that come up uh, with the answer that's already been given to us, see. Mm. And so, um, and I think that's such a, it's beautiful what you're saying and and the relevance of yoga as the tool to participate. I mean, that's where that comes in, right? Because without that tool of participation in this reality, then you are living in this this duality, even if it is in the spiritual pursuit of trying to attain this spiritual goal. It's it's that um so you know that's been lost obviously and I'm not sure whether you believe that comes down to the fact that some of the most famous teachers that came out to share Hatha Yoga with the world didn't spend enough time with their with their teacher Krishnamacharya. Um, and you know I, I did read that, I think in an article that you wrote, that Krishnamacharya was extremely disappointed, actually, to see the way that yoga was being popularized and how it had been lost. And I want to ask you about that. And I, I want to ask you a question, which I think many people who will listen to the podcast will be thinking about. And that is, you know, how do I incorporate some of the principles that Krishnamacharya um, had embodied and was offering into a modern daily practice yeah well the answer to that is is you are the answer to that that you i think you first found out about this existence of heart of yoga on you know through instagram and then you followed it up and you've done various courses and so forth online and that's the first immediate answer that this this knowledge of actual yoga is there that, that's, you know, I said the urgency of the human situation that we're in, you know, we're trying to put this out into all countries, you know, into China, into Japan, into Europe, into Australia, into Africa. We have the heart of yoga Africa, you know, <laughs> you know, and it's all done online. So that, so people can follow it up. And just to say that, you know, it is a sad thing that, that happened that, that, um, Krishnamacharya was personally hurt that his own student, who who was a family member, by the way, and so he was very kind to this young boy Iyengar, who was in the family, and he so did his best. And, you know, of course, there's problems. I'm sure he was too autocratic with the young boy and sort of frightened him. And you know as i said you know india is a very misogynist place and krishnamacharya was not exactly um free of some of the cultural patterning that's there in india but he did his best you know i think we sort of slipped over the point as you know krishnamacharya proved that women in the ancient world were also yoga adepts and women were educated in religious matters and yoga matters as much as the men you know, he wanted to show that. So in his time, he he wanted the women to have yoga, to have a yoga education and to um, have the mantras and, you know, all the Vedic practices that have been the domain of men only for hundreds of years. So he wanted to break through. So I divert a little bit, you know. Um, he wanted to make sure that, everybody got yoga in the way that is right for them you know he said the mothers are the nurturers of the community therefore they must be nurtured they must be given their yoga practice a time to do yoga a space to do yoga you know so all of that was there he was very disappointed that the young men took off and used the sort of gymnastic accuracy uh, as a as a commodity, as a product to sell, uh, this this uh, obsession of straight lines on a, a human body that has no straight lines. We are all spirals, you know. We are curves. There's no angularity, you know. We are spirals. That's the fact of it. And yet, along came 
this uh, sort of style of yoga of imposition of will of mind on the body and putting straight lines and geometry on the body. And he said it was just completely inappropriate and and dangerous. In fact, if you get too committed to that, you start doing creating either um, you know repetitive strain injury or you know gradual injury or sudden injury on the body. It's not useful at all. So he was disappointed. He wrote in the Light on Yoga, which is Mr. Anger's book, he wrote a lovely endorsement, you know, but is because he was he was a very kind man, you know, and he, he was he wanted to see the young, his young, you know, family member thrive and be successful. So he's, you know, he wrote a nice endorsement to that early work. But when the stories came out of Pune of what was actually going on, you know, this bullying of the body, the teacher bullying the student. And so on and so forth. It was very disappointing. And that's how the book, The Heart of Yoga, you know, that was partly in response to this. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, um, as far as I understand it, it was you that, that came back from America and you were speaking to Jessica Char and The Heart of Yoga was a part of the solution to this misrepresentation of, of yoga. Yeah, I'd spent a lot of time in India with Jessica Char and Krishnamacharya until he died in 1989. And, and about 92, I think, I went to the US because I, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, I went because I wanted to explore publishing Desik Chah's book, The Heart of Yoga. And I saw what was going on in yoga. And I came back to Desik Chah and I said, look, I've been here with you for years and what's going on, what, what has been called yoga, doesn't at all resemble what your father taught. And I said, it seems very sad. And he said to me, "Is if there's anything that we can do that you can do, Mark, to correct that situation. And I, I said, well, there must at least be a book where the principles of your father's teaching are made available to the public. And he said, please do. So um, I got busy and found that publisher inner traditions and we created that book that has been translated into many languages now it's you know it's even in it's in china and it's in taiwan and it's in japan it's you know it's in all over the place it's in spanish um and he was very grateful that that started to happen i saw Descacha work very hard for a few decades to correct what he, he knew was a, a cultural fault. He, he came to Australia with me um, on a big tour and he, he, he observed himself what was going on. He said, Mark, I don't understand why do people, why are people bullying each other like this? And I think Mr. Iyengar sort of gave license to a bullying personality in this world to likewise bully the people and it's always in this hoax of you know practice and all is coming you know it, the the religious search the spiritual search for some future sublimity rather than the participation in what there actually is so it's it's just a a blindness that's there, thought-created misery that's been put into us that's called civilization and has been going on for centuries. And I think we're sort of at the end of the road now. You know, democracy has either got to come through and we've got to start immediately cooperating with the ecologies of Mother Nature. We're all out of here, you know. So anyway, that was his commitment, and it is our commitment. And the yoga, as it's been popularized, is sort of part of the problem. It's, you know, one more commodity that's exploiting the gullibility of people. Can I ask a question just about that? Because, you know, going back to this idea that, um, you know, Desika Char attained ordinariness in some in some ways, that he was a very unpretentious and grounded man who was interested in actually, you know, teaching the real teachings of yoga. And, you know, the irony is, is that he's less popular than, you know, many other teachers around the world who, 
you could say, aren't really teaching yoga at all. And so, you know, what do you have to say about, you know, that imbalance that's created sometimes when people are genuinely trying to share yoga naturally, they're not going to be trying to make a big business out of it. And they're not going to be these charismatic, famous kind of people really pushing themselves on the world. They tend to be quieter and more conservative and so it seems like a very slow evolution, the way the, te- the real teachings spread. What, what do you think about that? Krishnamacharya made us thank you for a, a, an excellent question, a very pertinent question. Krishnamacharya said, uh, the truth cannot be defeated. <laughs> it's like, you know, Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire cannot destroy, the, cannot conquer the blue sky. That great New Zealand band, Crowded House, Neil Finn. Um, you cannot conquer the truth. And Krishnamacharya said of himself, "Is I cannot be defeated." See, but he, and there was a great humility in his life. And it's true, you know, God is great, but bullshit is greater, you know, in the the world, you know. And I think there's a slow turning. A slow turning, but with the with the obvious terror of this public framework, which is the only framework that we have, is that somehow war will create peace. War with yourself will bring you peace. No, it won't. Meditation will not bring you peace. The struggling with the mind. What will bring us peace is intimacy with the actual condition that we are in. If there's any power in this universe, it is nowhere but in you in me it's what we are there's a profound peace in the body trying to know peace destroys or apparently seems to destroy the peace it's just efforts in the mind you see and this is coming to humanity i think like this this early experiment in yoga in the west i would say has pretty much had its day you know people are there's been so much injury and so much disappointment in it and this bravado of the celebrity gymnastic noah uh i think is winding down and people want to know what yoga actually is and we speak of the whole body breathing you know this word for breath and in rome at the time of christ was spirit spiritus is the breath Everything is the power of the cosmos is in the breath. It is the whole body breathing that links the mind to the heart and links the torso or the physical body to the heart. The heart being the power of the cosmos, the nurturing power of the cosmos that came into existence at procreation, that created mother and father and created you and me. And life is this nurturing. This nurturing has been we have dissociated from what life actually is. Life is nurturing. And by this whole body breathing, this hatha yoga that developed in the period of the tantras is each person's direct intimacy with life as it actually is, which is a nurturing force. The asana is there for the union of the inhale with the exhale. That's what asana is for. It's for the breath. It's for strength that is utterly receptive receptivity makes strength stronger more durable more flexible Uh, the receptivity of men and women because you know the only framework we've been given is the framework of male orthodoxy and that's in the women and the men you know it's both are losing out there's no we we value strength we value attainment you know in every area of life sport and and commerce and politics and you know imagined uh, spiritual attainment and so forth but we we do not value receptivity and if anyone gets an actual yoga practice then this receptivity through the crown and frontal line of the body to the base of the body where that strength is only in the context then of receptivity of nurturing then there is wellness then there is intimacy with life intimacy with each other 
intimacy and same sex and opposite sex intimacy is there and if there's not that receptivity it's not there i'm sorry it's not there we are otherwise programmed in a life committed to attaining future sublimity and there is a, god is not in the future enlightenment is not in the future there's no such thing so i think that there could be a turning when we see as humanity is starting to see how desperate the situation actually is you have been listening to wisdom now you can subscribe to find out about new episodes we'll see you next time